This is a Federal News Network podcast. The House Armed Services Committee spent some time last week marking up the defense authorization bill for 2023. As always, the NDAA has a lot to say about procurement and contractors, but it doesn't say anything about whether they're compensated for inflation. Here with what the services contractor community is watching closely, Professional Services Council President David Berteau. And David, you listened in on this. And what do you see going on here with respect to contractors? Yeah, Tom, it was a welcome change. You know, the entire House Armed Services Committee markup was done live on the web starting at 10 a.m. last Thursday and lasting till midnight or later. I didn't stay up all the way to the end, I confess. But uh, uh, we got to see hundreds of amendments disposed of uh, the final bill, we're waiting to see the actual language of the final bill, but uh, it did add, uh, you know, $37 billion to the DOD request. This is a little bit short of what the Senate added. They added $45 billion, but we haven't seen the Senate's language yet either. Uh, they just put out a little bit of a press release that touted a couple of items. The big issue for companies, though, is how does this help them address the inflation that they're experiencing today, particularly workforce inflation, the extra cost of workers, not only to recruit them, but to retain them. Right. And so contracts that might be ongoing that have certain labor and rates built into them, uh, you'd be stuck if those rates continue, but the labor costs are going up. Right. Well, look, we're living in fiscal year 22 right now, right? So the legislation is for FY23, uh, which doesn't start until October 1st. And as we expect, won't actually start until sometime well after that, because we'll be under a continuing resolution for a while. This year's budget, FY22, assumed an inflation rate of about 2.2%. It's actually, as we know, 8.6% or higher in many cases for government employees and government contractors. Well, that's a difference of, you know, $50 $50 billion uh, right there across the board for, for the Defense Department. None of that is addressed in the NDAA. There's a 4% assumption of inflation for FY23, which is again is about $30 billion short if you assume that today's inflation goes on forward. They attempted to address that, but only in a couple of areas. All right. And what about procurement? I mean, so you'll go broke trying to fulfill contracts on fixed prices that we can pretty much assume, but often the NDAA has procurement provisions. What do you see shaping up here this time? It does. And some of the procurement provisions, of course, you know, we watch these very closely. A number of amendments were proposed that could add some value to this. A couple were proposed that would not. One that uh, we were particularly pleased to see go down to defeat was a proposal to interfere with the e-commerce pilot project. You may remember a few years ago, the FY18 National Defense Authorization Act created an e-commerce portal pilot project under the General Services Administration. And ultimately, GSA awarded contracts to three companies, and it's a three-year pilot. This is a real pilot, unlike some pilots, which are just designed to take care of an issue and put it on the shelf after the pilot is done. It's a real pilot to see if we can have the government buy off the internet the same way you and I do every day. Well, not every day, but every day we buy, we buy something there, right? And uh, and this is now two years into it. This amendment would have kicked one of the current contractors off the contract. This is a major precedent, it would set, of the Congress interfering legislatively in an ongoing contract by essentially 
forcing a termination for convenience by the government without any rationale or cause other than the fact that Congress decided it was time to do that. Which so one do we they were, want to get rid of? They didn't specify the name of the company. What the amendment did is it said no company can be on this contract if their market cap, their their actual uh, you know, stock value times the number of shares outstanding is more than $600 billion. Well, there's only one company of the three on the contract that meets that test, right? The, the three companies on this contract were Fisher Scientific, Home Depot, and Amazon. And you can do the arithmetic in your head as to which one meets that test. So the amendment did not specify by name. But it, it's not so much the company involved as it is the precedent that this would set of Congress interfering in an existing contract. The whole federal procurement system depends upon the integrity of the process and the ability of contracting officers to exercise their uh, warrant in, in the interests of the federal government. And particularly something that's already two years in of a three-year contract made no sense whatsoever. So we were really pleased to see this go down to defeat in a, in a, a, a roll call vote in, in the committee markup. Interesting. Um, Somebody that, had it in for that company, I guess. Well, it's not the first time this has been proposed. It's been brought up as amendments on the floor. It's been brought up uh, uh, as separate bills, etc. So we continue to watch this sort of thing. And again, it's not about the individual contractor or the company. It's about the precedent that it sets for the government. We're speaking with David Berteau. He's president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Well, that aside, then, it gets us back to inflation as the biggest concern going into next year and the dollars available. What do you think can be done to address this issue? Well, this is not something really Congress can address, although there is the potential of a, uh, a supplemental for FY22 for inflation. But all that Congress can do is actually put money in specific line items, and the NDA did that. It put uh, about $3 billion, $3.5 billion for fuel inflation. We all know about fuel inflation every time we put gas in our vehicles, right? And, uh, and, and military construction project inflation. But this doesn't address the contractor's costs, the particular cost of workforce. What could be done and what you're seeing being done is some agencies are opening the aperture for a request for an equitable adjustment subject to the available funding, right? So no more money needed, just what funding's out there today. Um, other agencies are making it very hard for companies to submit such requests. What we probably need is a government-wide set of guidance that says, if you've got the money, open up the door, let the contractors submit their, their requests, and adjudicate them positively so that the companies can stay in business. This is particularly true for small and mid-sized businesses that don't have the resources necessary to ride this out for how long? How long will inflation keep going? I don't know. Do you? I wish I did. I would bet on it. But the issue of contractor labor costs, do contractors sometimes have the capability or the flexibility or the rights under the contract to reduce staffing for a given contract so that the costs remain stable? But there might be fewer people. Yeah, you've hit on something really key there because ultimately you can't perform above the funding that's there. And if your costs increase in, in somewhere along the way, you just have to fail to meet the requirements. That's not in the company's interest. That's not in the government's interest. That's not in America's interest. And so making adjustments to be able to uh, cover those costs would be particularly useful here. I think, though, that uh, um, there's also the possibility that you could see some encouragement coming out of the Congress on this. Uh, but I, we haven't seen any language along those lines yet. There was a, a, one other bill, one other amendment put into place that could have major implications there, and that has to do with O&M operation and maintenance accounts and readiness. And what do you see in the bill with respect to those accounts? So um, it requires DOD to submit to Congress starting next year's budget, right, uh, information about the 
operation and maintenance funding, and this is a particular line of funding that is one-year money that they need to keep weapon systems ready going forward. It's kind of surprising that DOD doesn't do this already, but I found when I was in the Pentagon as the Assistant Secretary for Logistics that it was very difficult to get the, that, those kinds of estimates going forward. So you know what you have for one year, but you don't know whether you have the money in the out years for that as well. So this would be a huge step in the right direction. One of the lessons from Ukraine is how hard it is to support your forces once a war is underway. And it's important for the U.S. to make sure we've got the funding necessary to do that going forward. When they say operations and maintenance, they don't just mean facilities. They mean also operations as in warfare operations? It is. This is flying hours. This is steaming hours for ships. This is tank miles. This is both for practice and for supporting forces in operations. So it has to do with continuity, basically. It has to do with continuity. It has to do with demonstrating to any potential adversary that we're perfectly capable of supporting our forces in a combat environment, unlike some in uh, Ukraine today. And just a final question, what are your members saying about the issue of retaining employees now? Because you hear a lot of companies, different industries where people say, well, unless I get what I want with respect to telework and this and that, I'm out of here. And there's this sort of employees in the driver's seat situation we have now in a lot of industries. It's probably the number one issue that our member companies are facing, Tom. You know, we've got 11 and a half million job vacancies in America today and only 6 million people looking for work. That says it's a seller's market, right? And that that's true even in the federal government uh, and for contractors where we've got way more job openings than we have individuals. And they kind of get to name their own tune right now, right? Uh, you, you drive by uh, offices, you go to federal offices, you don't see a lot of people going into the offices yet uh, in many cases. And so it's a real tough challenge in three ways. Number one, it's hard to recruit. Number two, when you lose somebody, then all the others are saying, wow, he just got a big raise by going to work for another company, not a contractor. What are you going to give me so that I don't go do the same thing? And then it's a question of training and investing in that workforce for the future as well. It's a triple challenge across the board. We really need uh, addressing of this by both the executive branch and the Congress. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Look forward to continuing this conversation down the road. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.